the mortals scramble, and a god stirs beneath their feet. Blood has been spilled, lives taken, and as we hold our breath to see who will live to see the sun again, I, Daniel, the keeper of arcane secrets, peer into your hearts and minds, and graciously offer you the elusive answers to the question you have been too afraid to ask aloud. How did it come to this? Assuming you have already listened to Episode 7, you may crowd around and tune in to this unique special in the series that I call The Deep Dark of Radiance. The Uluriak-Ukiak Valley has always been famous among the native Inuit people for its glorious view of the Milky Way, and was long regarded as a place of peace and serenity. This tranquility lasted generations, and it was even considered a place of romance and love, until a fateful night in the late autumn of the year 1811. The peace was shattered forever when a dark star from the heavens pierced the aurora borealis and came crashing down into the very heart of what would one day be known as Wolfjaw Lake. The lake boiled and the wildlife died, and it is said that two Inuit brothers who went to investigate were both found dead weeks later, misshapen and naked in the snow with faces staring straight up, agog with wonder and ecstasy. The lake and the surrounding valley were deemed cursed, and so not much is known of those first quiet years. Eventually, rumors from the tribe's hunters began to take hold. Rumors of large, aggressive beasts, twisted monstrosities, barely recognizable as the creatures they seemed to be imitating. Wolves, Bears, elk, and rabbits were all reported as being four times the size and ten times more feral, although no two of these creatures were ever seen at once. The local birds that fled the valley on the nights of the destruction had never returned, and the snowy owls and ptarmigans were replaced by birds so large and black that it is said that they could blot out the entirety of the wondrous starscape that hung above. But what they could not blot out were the brilliant lights of the Aurora Borealis, which seemingly shine brighter here than the rest of the Arctic. The rich blues and greens and yellows would chase the birds and other wildlife away in its light and it appeared as if the only safe time to travel was when the aurora was visible, especially during the 37 days in the late fall when the sun would refuse to rise, and the northern lights ruled above as kings. This period of time is known by the local Inuit as the Deep Dark. 
Soon, the valley was invaded by men from the nearby Klondike, seeking precious metals and potential fortunes. But when the white men arrived in the tundra of the valley, they were chased back by the desperate Inuit protectors who saw with more than just their coffers. Under the guidance of their wise women, the Inuit would come at night as quiet as the shadows they hid in, and they would kill the invaders and their animals, splaying them out as effigies to warn any future incursions. During these raids, they noticed that some men were able to heal from all wounds except fire, and so the natives lit the screaming settlers ablaze. From that day forward, each member of the tribe removes one ear to show that they are not like the monsters they fought, but also as a symbol of contrition and guilt for the brutality of their actions. These non-violent people were forced to sacrifice their morals to purge the evil, and they committed their descendants to bearing the mark of their shame. But the white strangers would not be abated. While some would call it a lust for adventure, the greed in the hearts of these strangers was powerful, as if they were drawn to the valley, and the Inuit were pushed back to the ridges of the surrounding mountains. Angry and exasperated, the natives left these settlers to their own fate, but continued to watch from afar, knowing that the evil slumbering in the valley could not be allowed to wake. It was these first settlers who claimed the valley as part of the Yukon and changed the name of the valley from Uloriak-Ukiak to Radiance. And though the lights above were said to be the inspiration of the name, it was, in reality, the glimmer of the lights off the exposed veins of iron and gold that gave the town its moniker. Born from avarice and sitting atop a powerful, malevolent will, a small settlement was founded. One entrepreneurial young man, James McGregor, felt the call of the valley stronger than anyone else. And while he came to the valley as barely more than a drifter, within five years he had built a small village nestled between Wolfjaw Lake and the nearby Mount Togusk. The neighborhood grew as James McGregor opened his town and his heart to visitors and potential prospectors, and his little town grew in number and fame. But James McGregor was a man whose ire burned as fiercely as his friendship, and while he kept the peace throughout this frontier town, with naught but his soft words and gentle eyes, if someone were to break his rules, he would react swiftly and brutally. The mines, dug by his own hand at the base of Mount Togusk, were his claim and his alone. Anyone who interfered with his private operation would be run out of town that day, or so James would have the townsfolk believe. In reality, the mass underground grave at the bottom of Mineshaft Sea grew more and more crowded every year and James would often think he heard the voices of his victims calling out to him with messages from strange gods. For nearly 30 years, James and the settlement of Radiance 
would gather nearly endless wealth from the shimmering hills, and the entire village grew excited when word of a railway expansion made its way to town. On the eve of November 15th, 1848, a massive party was to be held to welcome a railway representative and his company in the town square. Luckily for him, the representative was delayed by the long darkness, and he was forced to wait until the sun rose again. When he finally arrived in Radiance, he was said to have been so mortified and disgusted by what he saw that he immediately turned his dogs to the nearest game trail and fled. Neither he nor his dogs were ever seen again. Abandoned in the horrific aftermath of this tragedy, his young aide, Henry Sullivan, made note of what he saw in the snowy banks. The skies held crimson waves that only served to further illuminate the village. I had heard to expect yellows and greens and blues, but what I witnessed of those alien lights were the reds and the purples. When we arrived, banners hung on buildings torn and all but destroyed by the elements, and streamers ran down the streets. It looked almost joyous as we rode up to the lonely dark buildings nestled near the base of the mountains. But we were stopped by our dogs, who refused to be driven forward, so Captain London and I, God help us, climbed off, and we walked the last few hundred feet. We turned onto the main boulevard of the town, and what I see still echoes through my dreams. We saw the people of the village, I think all of them, they were naked, frozen, and sitting, sitting in perfect rows. They were cross-legged, Injun-style, and buried in snow and ice up to their stomachs. Their arms were frozen solid and outstretched to those blasted lights above, and their faces, their faces were enraptured. Captain London mentioned how it looked as if the scavengers started feasting upon the remains of the men and women and children, even while they were still alive, which I thought a mighty queer detail to notice, and it chilled me to the very bone, considering the look of carnal joy on each of those frozen faces, each corpse. It held a crude iron knife in both hands, and each knife had what looked like frozen icicles of blood dripping from them. <laughs> Standing in the middle of this grotesque scene, frozen in time, was the scarred and mangled body of a man, tall and dark and exposed under the light. He had but one eye left in his head, but his bright, unflinching gaze seemed to peer through the thin sheet of ice and fix upon our very souls. He was huge, the biggest man I have ever seen, and all along his body were lesions and distended cysts. Captain London took one look at him and then a step back, and I took the moment to empty my dinner into the scarlet snows. I have no shame to admit that. And when I looked up, when I had regained my composure, 
My captain was gone, and I was alone. I was so alone. I burned the town and the bodies, and I left, vowing to never return to that accursed place, and I spent the winter in a logging shack miles away, and, and cynically, I named it Fort London. And when the British military finally found me, they thought it amusing, and they laid down stakes there to continue their investigation. I heard that little shed sprouted up, multiple buildings and a landing strip, and I'm sure that wherever he is, Captain London is grinning about it, grinning in the snow, staring up, maybe maybe holding even in his grasp an iron knife. <laughs> With that, the first gold rush of the area died down. But in 1872, a new wave of prospectors and adventurers came across the hills from Edmonton, bringing with them the promised railway. Nothing was left of old radiance, but a small black house outside a closed-up mine at the base of Mount Togusk. Hanging from a long rusted nail over the door of the shack was a placard, McGregor of Radiance. And so, when a troop of miners came and found the wealth hidden in mineshafts A, B, and D of Mount Togusk, they would name the company they would form the McGregor Mining Company after the strange house that led them to their treasures. As far as anyone knows, no one ever found the fabled Mineshaft C. A large mining facility was constructed just beyond the abandoned black house that stood as a monument of good luck and good fortune in the shifting snowbanks and for a few years the facility grew nicely. The local Inuit would refuse to enter the valley, but they would trade and attempt to warn the men as they dug out their new wealth. It did not take long, however, for the tribes to recognize the pattern repeating itself, and so they retreated back to their stoic and watchful ways. It wasn't until the railway launched the pride of the region the Klondike Trek, that the little town of Radiance was rebuilt as a tourist attraction on the very foundations of the original town, and it was officially put on the map in the summer of 1880. Just shy of 500 people called Radiance home, and the town was a bustling little attraction for rail-weary travelers. It appeared as if the curse was broken until the fall of 1885, and the McGregor mine was shut down and sealed after an accident claimed the life of 37 miners. That winter, the aurora blazed red across the sky again, and the local Inuit tribe was seen moving about the mines as chants and crows filled the air. The next few years saw the small town dwindle slowly in population, down to just fewer than 100. In an effort to pull more tourism to the suffering little tundra towns and villages, the tourist attraction was revamped by an investor 
and veteran of the Anglo-Zulu War named Raymond Sullivan, and the newly rebranded Yukon Adventurer Luxury Train Line was formed in 1896. It was in that same year when a few retired prospectors who had been fortunate enough to escape the valley with their incredible wealth came back to town with a new name for their enterprise, the McGregor Institute. They took the old mining camp, including some buildings that had been mysteriously burned down, and changed it into a scientific outpost helmed by former prospector and lead geologist Vincent. The outpost ran for a few years until war broke out in Europe, pulling many of the able-bodied laborers away from the camp. But Vincent stayed, seemingly obsessed about some small discovery found in the cave. When the war was over, the McGregor Institute sent a new lead geologist to take over the operations in Radiance. This new geologist was a hard, strict, German expatriate named Dietrich Lang, and when he arrived at the outpost, Vincent was gone and was never seen in town again. And while the McGregor Institute appeared satisfied with Dr. Lang's new approach to the research, his obsession also grew. While he began to spread the fervor to the other members of his team and seduce them into his ways of thinking by any means necessary, Raymond Sullivan the investor of the Yukon Adventure moved to town and began a family. He rose to become a prominent figure and was even elected mayor while his son grew up to be the sheriff and his daughter became the head librarian in town. Beloved by nearly everyone, they banded together with the town's oldest prospector, Bernice Grant, and found a very exclusive social group that the citizens of Radiance were incredibly curious about. But Sheriff Brad Sullivan has had his work cut out for him recently. As the town began to empty for the deep dark to return, more people than usual left Radiance. One of his deputies even eloped with the local doctor and left the town shorthanded for the hard winter ahead. While being forced to find a replacement, he also had to arrest a strange native man from the south named Wash, who came warning that both his souls sensed a great danger looming in the night. And there was another lover's quarrel that turned to a vicious fight in the middle of Church Street. Even the local Catholic priest had become violent and threatening when he had to be evicted from his own church due to misunderstandings. And while Sheriff Sullivan was handling these issues, a quiet little man named Reuben Ward arrived in town and hiked up to the scientific outpost, which was short-staffed as the daylight waned and faded. He avoided the screaming and chanting coming from inside the research center and headed to the mine itself, where he found two pieces of porous iron and let the voice from his dreams whisper the names Darren Small and Martin Noir. By the time that Reuben had returned to his room at the Wolfjaw Inn, the final train of the season had attempted to escape the sheriff and his new strange militia. And as Reuben seduced the frightened bartender at the inn and slipped an iron rod into a drawer in the kitchen there, 
Mayor Sullivan's organization started carrying sacks of wriggling black worms and knocking on doors. They had already slaughtered all of the sled dogs and torn the guts out of the equipment in the radio tower, removing any hope of intervention from the outside world. The escaping train had been derailed by an impact from an albino wolf the size of a trolley car, and the terrified passengers inside were set upon by dozens of wolves who were breaking in through the windows. All while massive black crows watched silently with eyes the same color as the polluted aurora above them. Meanwhile, the troops at Fort London capitalized on the long darkness befalling this side of the world and were mobilizing for drills and war games in the frozen wasteland. The Inuit guardians, having just banished a small group of survivors, were split in two, arguing about whether they should intervene immediately or even at all. Mayor Sullivan had rounded up nearly all of the survivors most of whom had barricaded themselves in the kennels, and he was preparing to sacrifice them to his dark god that slumbered beneath the valley. But his son and some of the other monstrous guards had already fallen in small skirmishes, and the desecrated church was demolished by TNT. Now Reuben lies in wait for his time to strike. Wash has escaped into the night to provide aid to anyone still human in the town of Radiance. A communications officer from Fort London decides not to wait for his commander's return, while a young, brave Inuit man gives a rousing speech to his tribe and the ex-geologist named Vincent that lives among them. The wolves stalk. The crows watch. The monsters lurk, and two small groups of people cling to life and pray for salvation as they scramble across the rubble and through the few remaining unburnt structures in radiance. The evil lights in the sky are swirling, matching the movements of the water in Wolfjaw Lake. The call for aid has been heard, but enough blood has now been spilled. Nearthlotep wakens, and the end times are upon us. This has been an It's a Mimic production. You can find more quality content on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube, or at www.itsamimic.com. I leave this journal to anyone who is cursed enough to find it. The things I see in my dreams. 
the things I see in radiance <laughs> under those lights under the dying lights I cannot escape <laughs> and now I end my life